Welcome to the Rock of Ages Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Duke Backus. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit rockofagesaog.org. I want to get into this message that I prepared for you tonight. It's a message I've entitled Long Expected Hope. This is the time of year, church, that we, you know, obviously we, we recall and recount and remember, you know, the birth of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. And so I, I want to read this scripture to you. In 1 Peter 1 and 20, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The life of Jesus, church, the life of Jesus is what brought this world to be. Amen? The life of Jesus is what brought the world to be, and his life is woven throughout all creation. And I believe in this time and in this season that you and I are living in, I believe more and more we will see the power of Jesus manifest in our day and in our hours so that people will turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. Amen? How many of you believe that with me tonight? Amen? I believe it's so important that we, we, we understand what the Lord is doing in the season that the Lord actually has us in. Amen. Because guess what? Jesus is going to return. That should, man, you should have been more excited about that. I said, Jesus is going to return. Amen. How many of you have a mortgage? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you have a mortgage. Jesus is going to return, my friends. Guess what? That mortgage payment ain't going to follow you up to heaven. Amen? That's a good thing. How many of you pay taxes? Amen? We all should. <laughs> I said we all should. Doesn't mean we all do. If you pay taxes, guess what? There's going to be no taxes in heaven. There's going to be no sickness in heaven. The Bible says for the old order of things has passed and the new order of things has come. There will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. Jesus will rule and reign forever, church. That is a glorious, glorious day. Amen? But Christmas, I believe that season of Christmas is truly one of the most wonderful times of the years because more than gifts or presents, lighted trees and time with our friends and our family, I believe now is the time of remembrance that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Amen? It is a holy season. It's a time where the glory of God is shown through us in so many ways. Amen? But I believe even with the splendor that, you know, this season, this holiday season brings to you and I and the joy of Christmas all around, you or someone you may know may be convinced that Jesus was simply a prophet or Jesus was simply a good man, but Jesus was certainly not the Messiah. You see, in the hour that we're living in, church, I believe that it's becoming more and more distinct, more and more known who believes in Jesus and who does not. Amen? If there was, if there was blurry lines before, I believe the lines that are now being drawn in the Spirit are that much more clearer. Those who are following Jesus are that much more, you know, illuminated in this darkened world than those who are not. Amen? And so those lines that were once kind of fuzzy or blurry, you know, you know, 
at a season ago or a time ago, they're, they're much more defined now because guess what? People know the truth. They know that Jesus exists. They know that Jesus was the man who claimed to be the Messiah. They know that Jesus came to redeem the world of sin. People know this, but do they believe it? Amen? Do they believe it in their core? Do they certainly know that it is Jesus that will resurrect them and take them to be with him forever? This man of Jesus is controversial at best for many, many people because many people place their hope in vain ambitions. Many people, my friends, place their hope in things like the stock market that will fall and will rise. Many people place their hope in investments, in good relationships, in all kinds of things. And certainly, the hope of the world must be more majestic than this Hebrew child that was born in a manger. You see, a lot of people think, you know what, it has to be more than just Jesus. Jesus, you know, is good for people that, you know, want to be religious. Or Jesus is good for people that are, you know, they're weak-minded. You know, I've heard people say that before. And, and the world is still looking. They're saying, you know, there's got to be something more than Jesus. You know, it's got to be, you know, my, my, my life's purpose. You know, it can't just be Jesus. Just the other day, I was walking through, uh, I don't know where we we're at, HEB or somewhere. And I, I kid you not, you know, I'm not a magazine reader. But, you know, you go to the check out and you pay and there's magazines, right? You know, you see them on the stands next to you and there's Jesus. <laughs> and I'm convinced that Jesus is on the cover of Time Magazine every year. But most of the time you see the picture of Jesus and it's probably some article that's written to somehow disprove or slander the name of Jesus or, or somehow try to cause people to not fully believe in the name of Jesus. But what I find interesting is they don't do that about Muhammad. They don't do that about Kabbalah. They don't do that about Scientology. They don't do that about any other world religion. But they will always try to get people to stop believing in Jesus because those who actually think those who see, those who know, church, they actually know in their core that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. The Bible says that even the devil believes in Jesus. Amen? And so I find it so interesting because I see these magazines and these articles. They're always out there. They're always trying to pull people away from Jesus. They're trying to dissuade people from trusting in Jesus. Jesus is unique. You know, there's so many things about Jesus that set him apart from every other religion with biblical prophecy and proof to back each and every one of them up. From the beginning of, uh, you know, God had a plan and through hundreds of prophets in the Old Testament, God prepared the world for the coming of his son. And Jesus was really born to live and to die for the sins of humanity. The Bible teaches us that, you know, more than 300 prophecies were fulfilled throughout the life of Jesus. But I want to give you five really quickly tonight. Number one was this, is Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This was a prophetic word. Let's read about it. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings Forth are from old and from everlasting. 
So this was the prophet Micah that was speaking and the prophecy was fulfilled after Christ's birth. The Bible says that King Herod gathered the chief priests and the scribes and he asked them where the Messiah would be born. And they responded by citing this Old Testament prophecy revealing that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Mike, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 5 says this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are, no, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. It says, For from you, you shall come, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In John 7 and verse 42, the Bible says this, Has not scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? This is just one prophecy. Let's, let's add another. The second one was Jesus was born of a virgin. The biblical prophecy was given in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. It says, behold, the virgin, virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 says, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So just as Isaiah said, hundreds of years before, the Virgin Mary did indeed conceive a son and call him Emmanuel. Jesus being born of a virgin fulfilled this prophecy from hundreds of years before. Let me give you a third one. Jesus was rejected by his people. In biblical times, there was building foundations, and they were built from stone. And many of you remember that, you know, they would start with like a single stone, and that stone would be placed at the corner of, of the foundation. There would be one single stone that would, would be, you know, that was what was going to set the course of, of the leveling of the foundation, of, of setting this building or this structure. It would be a guide for the entire thing. And the cornerstone was essential to the structure of the building, and it ensured that each wall would be balanced, straight, and solid. And so the Word of God tells us that Jesus was sent to be the cornerstone for the world, but he would be rejected in the process. In Psalms 118, we see this. Verse 22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We see later in the book of Matthew that there's a conversation which uses, Jesus uses the words from David in Psalms 118 to remind the religious leaders who he was. And he said to them, he said, have you ever read the scripture? And he quotes it here in Matthew 21. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus was prophesying about himself to men who knew about the prophecy. Let's go number four. The fourth thing is Jesus suffered with and for sinners. Jesus suffered with and for sinners. And the prophecy is given in Isaiah 53 and verse 12. He says, therefore, I will divide him among a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
This prophecy we find is fulfilled in Luke chapter 23, verse 32. It says, therefore, there were also two others, criminals. They were led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the other criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Isaiah, this prophet, his name actually means salvation of the Lord. This prophet was known as one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. And the coming of Christ was foretold throughout the book of Isaiah with Isaiah 53 explaining just how much Jesus would suffer during his sacrifice for our sins. I'll give you one more. The fifth thing is Jesus performed many miracles. In Isaiah 35, rather, verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. It says, then the, the, it says, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It says, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. 700 years after Isaiah said this in John 11 and verse 47, it says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. Luke 21, 7 and 21 says, And at that very hour, he cured many of their infirmities, their afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. We could be here all day. We could be here all night. We could go on and on and on and on about the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And I can verify and tell you, church, with all certainty, every single one of them is 100% accurate. Amen? Every single one of them is actual, absolute truth. Something that no psychic, no medium, no other religion could ever guarantee because God promised that he would send a Savior to the world. And guess what? He did. This is Jesus. And tonight I want to just, you know, speak to you a little bit about this message that I've called Long Expected Hope. I read this one time. It said, if it, it was once said, if our greatest need had been information, then God would have sent us an educator. It said, if our greatest need had been technology, then God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, then God would have sent us an economist. It says, if our greatest need had been pleasure, then God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. Amen. Would you bow your heads and pray with me tonight? Holy Spirit, we love you. We thank you, God. Father, we just pray right now. You would just speak through me, Lord. Let your word, Father, just... Speak to the deepest places of our hearts, Lord. Father, I ask that your word would pierce, Father God, each and every heart tonight, Lord Jesus. Let it fulfill the work that it was sent to do, Father God. We love you, Jesus. We bless your holy name. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to talk to you about dependence just for a minute. Many of you remember that story where Jesus, he leaves Judea and he goes into the town of Samaria, to confront a woman. And he sits on the edge of a well, and Jesus is there, and, and he was tired, and he was thirsty. You know, he had been traveling, and he was going on a long journey. And so while he's sitting there, one of the events for which he had come into Samaria, it actually begins to happen. 
So he confronts this woman who comes to draw water from the well, which at this time it was an obvious need for people back in those days to obviously have a, you know, a source of water that they could tap into. And in this moment, Jesus strikes up a conversation by asking this woman for a drink of water. Now, she's completely shocked. You know, she's bewildered because in this time and in this, this, this day and age, Jews had no dealing or association with Samaritans. And so she asks Jesus, why would he ask her, a Samaritan, for a drink? And it was this question, this subject of water, that Jesus took and he used to discuss one of the greatest truths of spiritual life, that of living water. I want us to read this in John 4, verse 10. It says this, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She says, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as also did his sons and his flocks and his herds? It's interesting to me that this woman is, is has Jesus, the Messiah, the, the one whom you know, people had been waiting for. She knows of him and we'll learn a little bit about that later but she's, she's confronted with this man that is, that is prophesying right in front of her. He's He's, he's giving, you know, foresight into who it is that is actually present with her. And so she begins to ask questions, you know, where do you get living water from? You know, why are you here to draw water? You don't even have a pouch. You don't have anything to be able to take the water out of the well. And she's, she's being provoked in her thoughts, in her mind. She, she's thinking like, are you better than our ancestor Jacob who, who gave us this well? And she's asking all these questions, but something I want us to note, one of the very first things he said to her, he said, if you knew the gift of God. You see, a lot of people think Jesus is just a person that, you know what, if you want to believe in him, you can. But listen, I'm here to remind you that Jesus is the gift of God. Jesus was given as a gift for you and I. Not just in like a present, you know, something that you get on your birthday, but so much more. He is the precious treasure of heaven. He is a very gift. And he says, notice what he says right after that. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is. If you knew the gift of God and who it is. You see, there's people even in this room tonight that are just here because these pages maybe have been taught to them and maybe there's some kind of significance that they've learned or there's facts or information. But listen to me, my friends. Jesus is so much more than just paper. Amen? Jesus is just so much more than, than, than a word or a book. He's so much more than that. He is the very gift of God. Do we see that? Do we understand that? Do we recognize that? The person of Jesus is what actually makes the water come alive that he's speaking of. Amen? The person, his very being is of him. Psalms 36 and verse 9 says this, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. I'll read it again. For with you, who's the you? Jesus. 
For with you is the fountain of life. Jesus is the fountain of life. But church, she wasn't seeing the light that was right in front of her. She was completely mistaken. She had no idea that this was the living water. Living water is from a person much greater than this religious father. This woman was in this moment. She clearly saw that Jesus was making an interesting and unusual claim, but yet she did not understand what it was that he was asking of her. But she knew in her heart that he was getting to something. She noticed he had nothing to take up water. And so she asked these questions. Where do you get this living water? And was, there, was he rather greater than Jacob, one of the great Samaritans of her day? She's thinking in her mind. She says, Jacob had to dig a well to get to water. Jacob had to, had to conjure this thing up. Are you able, Jesus, to do even greater than what Jacob did? And the point is this. The woman recognized something that most people do not. And that is this, is that Jesus was claiming to be greater than one of the greatest religious fathers. He was claiming to be access to a much better well for quenching the thirsty souls of men. Jesus wasn't just claiming that he was part of a list of options to choose from to get to heaven. Jesus was saying, I'm the only way to get there. I am the only way to get there. And in this moment, I believe that Jesus was detaching her from this grip of security as she knew it. You know, when you come to Jesus, he is, he is detaching you from everything that you know to be natural. Did you know that? Because when you are born again and you, you are born again of the spirit and, and now all of a sudden you're, you're a child of God and you're, and you're functioning in the kingdom of God, it's completely opposite to the way things work in the natural, amen? It, it, it's so different. You know, it's like, you know, you, you, you're in the kingdom and you're, you're serving God and in order for you to be great in the kingdom, you must be the least. In order for you to be first in the kingdom, you must be the last, Amen? It's a life of humility, a life of servanthood. It's a life of love towards one another. It's a life of forgiving offenses that people, you know, bring towards you. You see, in the world, we don't function that way. In the world, when somebody does you wrong, you do them wrong back. Amen. In the world, when somebody, you know, cuts you off, you know, you're, you're ready to punch the gas and, and cut them off too. Uh, nobody did that on their way to church. Amen, right? Okay, praise God. In the world, things work so much different, but in the kingdom, it's completely the opposite. And in this moment, this world is, is being, this woman rather, is being met with the kingdom of God. She's met with the king of all kings, and he's right in front of her, and she's beginning to think and, and understand things differently. And so she's detaching her grip from security as she knew it. That is the grip of provision as she had experienced. She's saying, what is it that you're telling me that you have access to? What is it that I have to let go in order to get what you are asking me to get, which is living water? And I believe a lot like her, the Lord desires to do the very same thing in us. Some of us were raised with traditions and thinking and, 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 and generational you know, things that you know, we think this is the way it's supposed to be and all those things. But listen... I believe that when you come to Jesus, he will challenge everything that your life consists of. Amen? 
When you come to Jesus, he will challenge tradition. He will challenge the things that you depend on. He will challenge the things that you place your hope in. For he alone, my friends, he alone is the well from which men and women must draw salvation of their souls from. And I believe that Jesus would challenge every single heart in this room to consider what our source of hope is. Think about that question just for a moment. What is your source of hope? What is your source of hope? Well, Pastor Duke, I feel real good when my team wins on Sunday. Is that hope? Oh, well, Pastor Duke, it feels real good when Friday comes along and I get paid, you know. Is that real hope, though? What is your source of hope? Your job, your paycheck, your tradition, your taught beliefs? For this woman, Jesus was driving to the core of the issue and he was challenging everything in her life that she believed up until this point. So then Jesus takes it a step further. He brings her to this place of repentance. John 4 and 13, Jesus answers. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, it says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And so he told her, he said, go and call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So Jesus right here is, is exposing and he's, his light is shining into a place of her life. And all of a sudden, he's revealing things about her life that, guess what? He can never know unless the illumination of the glory of God was, was upon his life. And he's speaking to this woman in this moment. And all of a sudden, she is met with the first time of hearing truth. Because nobody had told her up until this point that she had been with all these people, all these men and all this stuff, and that she was living the life the way that she was. Nobody had confronted that about her life. In this moment, he exposes every single thing. And this first essential thing of facing truth is this, is the fact that, that it will confront sin. When truth is spoken, it will always confront sin. So when he tells her, well, you, you know what, you're right. In fact, you're not married. You've had five husbands and all these things. And he begins to share truth. He's not sharing truth to shame. He's not sharing truth and revealing truth to condemn her life. He's actually leading her to a place where she has the opportunity to repent. Because now she's seeing something. She's saying, hang on, who is this? How is it that he knows everything about me? And how is it that he is leading me to understand that I have an issue in my life and that issue is sin? What is he doing? So this woman who had requested living water, but before she could be given the living water of a spiritual rebirth, she had to be convicted of her sin to know what she would need to repent and renounce. Jesus alone saves souls. Amen. 
You see, when people come to Jesus, it's not a prayer that saves them. Did you know that? I'll say it again. It's not a prayer that saves them. Jesus saves. Amen. But there must be an acknowledgement of what they're being saved from. Amen. There must be an acknowledgement of what it is that they are being saved from. You see, a lot of times preachers will preach and say, oh, come to Jesus. You know, he loves you and just come to Jesus. And people say, oh, well, that sounds nice. You know, Jesus sounds like a really loving, you know, nice guy to hang out with. And you know what? I want Jesus to be my friend, too. But then they find themselves stuck in a place where their life is, is completely untransformed. Their life is completely stuck in its old ways. But yet they somehow said that they know Jesus or they like Jesus or they prayed a prayer about Jesus. But nothing has transformed in their life. And I have to remind us tonight that the only way that we will ever be saved is first by acknowledging what we need to be saved from. We have to recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And so there's a few things that happen here is that Jesus stirs conviction and confession of sin. If we understood right now, if Jesus, like, in the flesh was walking throughout this room, right here, walking through every single aisle, one of two things would happen. People would run and hide or people would begin to confess. Because there's something that happens within the proximity of knowing who Jesus is that draws out from us the impurities of sin. It pulls out from our life those things that we know that are not right before him. The things that we know that pain his heart, the things that we know that is not right according to his word. And so the first thing that people will do is that Jesus comes near and they begin to say, just like Zacchaeus said, he said, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. He knew that he was impure. He knew that he wasn't even supposed to be close to Jesus. And this confession comes out, this, this stirred conviction of sin, it comes out from their life. And now why is this necessary? Why is this important? Why did this woman have to face the truth of her sin before she could be spiritually reborn? I believe there's two reasons. Number one is this, is she was weary and she was heavy laden. She was incredibly burdened in her life. And this was caused by the weight upon her life. It wasn't a physical weight. It wasn't something, you know, that was necessarily tangible, but it was a spiritual weight because it was the state of wickedness of which she was under. I've shared this testimony with you many times, but, you know, and I believe, you know, I'm probably not the only one that experienced this, but when the Lord saved me, church, I was probably, I was much skinnier than I am even now. I was a 15-year-old kid that probably weighed 130 pounds, which is not very big. When the Lord saved me, I felt like a million pounds had been lifted off my body. I have no idea how to explain that. All I know is that there was this weight of sin that had been on my life that I did not know I was carrying until I gave it up to Jesus. And the moment that I released it, the moment that I asked him to save my soul, he took it off. I felt light as a feather. I felt like every burden, every 
wicked thought. Every single thing in my life had just been taken from me and it was nailed to the cross. This woman had to know this in order to seek the cure. She had to feel the weight of her sin. She had to understand that there was something upon her life that she needed rescue from. You see, a lot of times people think you're just saved because you sit in church. You're just saved because your dad's a pastor. You're just saved because you know the word. Listen to me, my friends. We can be starkly deceived if we think that we, you know, I know people that have been in church since they're born. But if you cannot remember the day that Jesus saved you, then I would want you to ask the serious question in your life, what are you saved from then? If you cannot remember the moment of which you encountered Jesus and he saved you from your sins, then when did you get saved? Almost every person that was saved in scripture, they ran around the town telling everybody about it. They, they were ecstatic in their heart. There was, a, there was something that happened in their life. They were, they were transformed. They were changed. They were delivered. Something happened in their life. And guess what? There was a confession of what it was that he had done for them. Listen to me, my friends. Sin must be removed. Amen? Jesus didn't die just so that we could get to heaven. Jesus died so that we could be free now. Amen. I'll say it again. Jesus did not die just so that you could get into heaven. Jesus died so that you could be free from sin now, church. Now. The biggest lie of the enemy is this, is that we can cover up our sin and somehow think that we're just going to get into heaven scotch-free. One of the biggest lies of the enemy is convincing you and me, convincing us every single day that we don't have an issue. Convincing us every single day that the sin that is actually controlling our life, it's controlling what you think, it's controlling what you do, it's controlling what you look at, it's controlling what you hear. All those things, sometimes we're convinced that because we sit in a church on a Wednesday night and we listen to some preacher talk about the word of God that we're saved or that we're delivered or that we're free. But listen to me, my friends. Jesus wants to set you free. He wants to take the weight off. He wants to do the heavy lifting because he's already done it on the cross for you. All of it, he wants to do it for you. Sin has to be removed and renounced and forgiven and cleansed before true rest and true relief will come. Once this woman, she was freed from sin, rest and relief would come. She would no longer be weary under that penalty of sin, under the load of sin and the irresponsibility, the guilt, the shame, but she would be set free and given a life of spiritual rest. The second thing is this, is she had the symptoms of a disease, but she didn't know what the disease was. I remember talking to a young person one time, and they were little. They were, it was more like a child, and, and they were just basically explaining that they didn't know why they did the things that they did. And that's what sin is. You know, when a child says, well, I don't know why I get mad, but I, I, I get mad, and you know, I don't know why I say the things that I say, but I, I, I do it anyways. I just, I, I feel bad, you know, but I don't know why. That's sin, my friends. 
It's something that's controlling you that you don't have control over. And this woman, she needed deliverance from it. She did not know the symptoms of her disease. She did not know what the disease was. And so, therefore, she was unable to cure what it was that she had. Going from man to man to man was an opiate that she had sought out. And guess what? It wasn't working. Relationship after relationship, going from one person to another, it was not fulfilling this thing that she was missing in her life. She needed deliverance, but she did not know how to be delivered. And so the woman's disease was the same disease of all men, and it was sin. And did you know that sin must be renounced before the living water of a spiritual rebirth in Jesus can be given? This is important. This is important for us to identify. The next thing I want us to notice about this woman's encounter with Jesus is Jesus accepted no evasion. What does that mean? Jesus would not accept this woman going back on what it was that he revealed. What does that mean? The woman tried to evade the fact of her sin. She told the truth, but she she did not have a husband, but she was living with a man just as she would live with a husband. And the point is this, is any sinner cannot evade their sin. That is, we must face it, we must come to grips with it, and admit it so that we could find living water, so that we could have our souls cleansed, so that we could have the Lord transform our life. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Jeremiah 23 and 23 says this. Such a powerful verse. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord. And not a God far away. Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. He said, do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. You see, even all the way back to the garden, after Adam and Eve had sinned, what did the Lord ask? He says, Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. But what did sin cause Adam to do? Caused him to hide. Many people are hiding. Many Christians are hiding. Sometimes the altars are empty because people don't want to have themselves exposed. Listen to my friend. I want us to know this very clearly. No one is in here to judge you. Amen. This is a hospital for the sick. Amen. This is a hospital for the sick. And when we come to an altar to find mercy, to pray, to ask the Lord to deliver us of our sin, it should be a place where no person is ever shamed. But dare I say that when many altar calls are made or many opportunities to come and to pray and to ask the Lord to do something in your life, to transform an area of your life, many times we stay in our seat because of shame. We think that all of a sudden we're exposing ourselves and everybody's going to know that we're a sinner. Raise your hand if you're not a sinner. Exactly. So we're all in the same boat. Amen? 
And when we expose those things before the Lord, it's the Lord that gives us mercy. It's the Lord that transforms. It's the Lord that breaks the yoke. It's the Lord that does the work in our life. Jesus knew all about this woman. He knew everything about her life. He knew whether she was guilty. He knew about her ungodly, her worldly choices. He knew everything about her. Jesus knew the truth about her sin. And guess what? He knows the truth about our sin as well. He knows the truth about your life. Today, church, nothing is hidden from the Lord. It would be a comical thing to try to hide from the Lord. Amen. It would be so much easier to simply just come to him. I think a lot of times this world has trained us to do what kids do when they get in trouble or they've done something bad. For those of you that are parents, you know, it's like, you know, and I, I guess I'll blame this on moms. <laughs> Sorry, moms. Moms usually say, when your dad gets home, you're going to get it. Put all the responsibility on the dad to be the enforcer or the punisher or whatever, and and, and, and kids, what does that cause them to do? It causes them to be afraid. They're fearful, right? Like they're worried. They're like, oh, man, you know, dad's going to get home. And, man, I'm going to get in trouble. And, you know, and, oh, and, and so what do they want to do? They don't want to say anything. They don't, they don't want to say that they messed up. They don't want to say, like, I'll, I'll never forget when I was, my girls were really little. And they'll watch this one day. But when my girls were really little, we would buy them food and, and uh, they would ask, you know, hey, you know, could I have a candy or some dessert or whatever? And say, well, when you're done with your food. Man, next thing we know, it's like they were done with their food. We go check on them and, well, that was fast. Okay, yeah, you can get a, you can get a candy. And then, you know, you know, next time we'd be eating or whatever, and they'd ask the same thing. Can I, can I have this or can I have that? Yeah, are you done with your food? Uh, almost. And then, man, they were done with their food. And I, this is like a two-year-old. My girls ate like very, very little. And so they're finishing their food super fast. And I tell Mandy, I said, I don't know. Something seems like it's weird, you know. They can't be finishing their food this fast. We got to investigate, you know. I'm not, fool me once, you know, fool me twice, you know, fool me three times. No, 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 you're not going to get it past me. So I, I go and I inspect the trash can. I check the trash can. There's no food. All right, well, whatever, you know, here's your candy. So my wife, being the good, lovely, awesome wife that she is, she's cleaning the house one day, and she pulls out the couch. She finds about a 20-piece chicken nugget <laughs> under our couch. There's petrified chicken nuggets that have been there. Lord knows how long. I have no long they had been there. And she's like, dude, you know, there's all these chicken nuggets under the ground, under the couch. And we tell her, girls, we're like, have you been hiding these? And, and, and I think she had initially set it up. She asked them. She told them that she found something that they would want to see. And so, so they're all surprised, you know, thinking that, you know, she found some lost toy that they had. And then she brings it to their attention. And the initial reaction's like, and then the next reaction's like, oh, man, guilt, shame. Like, I'm busted. Like, they know, you know, and, and they, were, they were all like that. I say all that is because one thing as a parent that I've done my best to do is that I've never wanted my children to be fearful of how I may react 
even if they've done something wrong. This is very important. Listen to me, parents. God is a holy God and God is a just God. Amen. But I believe more than the just that I've seen God give me, I've seen God give me mercy. Psalms 103 talks about how the Lord doesn't even punish us as our sins deserve. He's merciful. And more times than not, when I've come to the Lord with my sin, when I've come to the Lord with the things that I'm ashamed of, the Lord didn't punish me and, you know, get after me and, and strike me down. He picked me up and he'd embrace me. He'd wipe my tears and he'd clothe me with righteousness. He'd remind me that I was cleansed in his blood. And he has this beautiful, perfect way of showing us mercy. And I want to remind us tonight, church, that we can come to him with anything. And the Lord isn't going to shame you in that moment. He will expose it. He will show you the truth. He will show you that it's there. He will show you that it exists. But the Bible says it's the loving kindness of the Lord that leads us to, re to repentance. It's this beautiful way that the Lord has the ability to love us that just brings us back to that place of saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I know that I need you. John 8 and 36 says, if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed, my friends. I know that there is someone in here that probably has a shout of praise in your heart and in your life. You know, that is a, a, a you know what the Lord has done for your life because you've been set free by the blood of Jesus. Amen. And that should remind us every single day that if we don't have a reason to shout or we don't have a reason to praise, then maybe there's some kind of chain upon your life. That hasn't been broken yet. Maybe there's something that's going on in your life. That has not yet been taken care of. I want to remind you my friends. Jesus is the best locksmith that there is. How many of you know what a locksmith is? He's that guy that when you locked your keys in the car. You know you got to pay a lot of money to. So that he can come and get them out for you. Unless you have a friend that knows how to do that shady kind of stuff. <laughs> but Jesus is the best locksmith that there is, for he alone has the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And Jesus can unlock whatever sin has kept you from truly living in freedom. Always, my friends. Jesus was prepared on that day at the well to set that woman free, but one last thing was needed. John 4 and 21, Jesus declared, Believe me. He said, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But Samaritans worship what you do not know. He says, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. He said, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. He says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said... I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. 
This woman's heart, I believe, was burning within her. There was like an intensity, a flaming sense of knowing that the presence of God was there. And the subject of her sin and of a true worshiper, it was actually causing her heart to reach out to God. Because she began to sense something special about Jesus. No man had ever spoken to her life the way that Jesus had. She could clearly see that he had something about him, that he had a special relationship with God, or even he was the Messiah himself. And so she brought up that subject, the idea that the Messiah was coming soon. This coming, this coming and his coming was at hand. It was imminent, and her belief was based upon Deuteronomy 18 and 15. This is the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, and you must listen to him. This woman could see that this man, was who he said he was. She was being led the entire time by Jesus, and she doesn't deny him in this moment. She actually believed in the coming and in the authority of the Messiah. Her belief, though, was not a saving belief. Here's the difference, not a belief of commitment. It was only a mental or intellectual belief, a belief of knowledge that opened her up to a personal belief. I believe, church, that many people are at the threshold of salvation just like the woman at the well because she was within reach of her Savior. But I want us to consider this as the body of Christ. Do you know that people are starving for hope today? There are people around you every single day that are bound, that are depressed, that are tormented, and it's those who carry the cure of Christ that will be like an injection of hope in the darkest of circumstances. But the hope and the warning of the gospel must always be issued. See, the hope is the salvation that Jesus offers. But the warning is the separation from a loving God into an eternity of punishment. See, both must be given. And I want to encourage us tonight just for a moment that you don't have to be salvation for anyone because Jesus has already done the work. Amen? Jesus has already done the work. The Bible says the moment that his blood was shed upon the cross, the work was completed. And that blood, my friends, was more than enough to, to cure the worst of sinners. It was potent enough to, to still heal people and deliver people more than 2,000 years later. That blood is more than powerful to wash any one of their sins and wash them clean. And so I want to remind us tonight what Jesus told his disciples after this encounter with the woman at the well in John 4 and 38. He said, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. I'll read it again. I have sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Jesus has done the work, my friends. Listen to me one more time. Jesus has done the work. Our responsibility is to share the gift of Jesus. Amen. Your responsibility is to share the gift of Jesus. It's important that us believers effectively communicate the gospel to the lost and the hurting. Matthew 13 and 19 teaches us something. It says, when anyone hears this message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed that is sown amongst the path. What is this teaching us? The enemy church is working hard to destroy the harvest of souls that God wants to reap. 
that Jesus wants to reap for his kingdom. And even now as I'm ministering this message, I believe that he could be trying to destroy the seeds of God's word in your own heart and stop you from coming to Jesus. But listen to me, my friend. Jesus is your answer. If you've come to find an answer or anything else but Jesus, then listen to me, my friends. You are going to be lied to and deceived. Jesus alone is the answer. Do you need healing? Jesus is the answer. Do you need forgiveness of your sins? Jesus is the answer. Are you oppressed? Jesus is the answer. Are you depressed? Jesus is the answer. Amen? Are you guilty? Jesus is the answer. Are you condemned? Jesus is the answer. Now, I want us to understand this. This woman was being led this entire time to a decision to accept an invitation to believe in Jesus and who it was that he had claimed to be. And I believe that every single one of us tonight is at that same point of decision. For somebody in this place tonight right now, I believe it could be receiving Jesus as Lord and depending on him for salvation. It could be the repentance from past sins and confession for forgiveness of sins. But for others, it could actually be freedom from some sin or bondage. Maybe somebody in this place has found themselves backslidden. Tonight, I want your hope to be restored. Because Jesus is here. Amen? Jesus stands at the place Of our most dependence. He stands at our well and he challenges us to give up the drink that you have to work for. Toil for, toil over. And receive the drink that he's prepared for you that will never leave you weary. It will never leave you parched. It will never leave you burdened. Jesus is standing at the place of your most shame. He's standing by the stagnant, gross Water. He's offering every one of us to come to him and to simply come clean with him. The moment that we take a drink of the living water, we ask his precious spirit to live within us. We are forever changed. And our sins are washed away by the power of his blood and by the power of his sacrifice. You see, Jesus always stands by the claims of who he is. Jesus is in the room right now, but the question is, do you recognize him? Do you embrace fully who he is today? Just like that woman at the well had to make a decision, you and I have to make a decision too. And I want to remind you tonight of something. The greatest miracle is the resurrected person of Jesus Christ. The greatest miracle that you could ever receive is not just simply healing for your body or some situation that you're going through for for God to work it out in your favor. The greatest miracle is himself. It's always himself. None other than himself. And when you most need a miracle, there is a Messiah who is willing to save you. When you most need a miracle, there is a master physician ready to heal you. When you most need a miracle, there's your maker. He will come and he will put you back together. When you most need a miracle, he will love you back to repentance. I'll say it again. When you most need a miracle, his spirit will love you back to repentance. 
when you most need a miracle, the very issue that you're dealing with could be the very same issue that he is using to draw you into dependence upon him. You see, when that thing that keeps tormenting you over and over and over again, that keeps ridiculing you, it's as if all of a sudden Satan is winning in your life. That very thing that causes you to go back time and time again is actually the very thing that you need to use to run to him and say, Lord, I have no solution for this but you, Jesus. I have nothing else. I have no one, Lord. And the medication ain't going to do it, God. A five-step program is not going to do it, Lord. Me trying to be a better person or control myself will not do it, Jesus. I need you, Lord Jesus, to break that chain in my life. When you most need a miracle, your greatest obstacle becomes your greatest catapult towards him. That man Zacchaeus, remember the story? He was too short. He couldn't see Jesus. He couldn't see Jesus over the crowd. But what did he do? He climbed a tree so that he could see Jesus. Or so rather that Jesus could see him. See, I don't know what it is that you need, but I know that Jesus is waiting to transform you. You see, when you need a miracle, your current circumstance is the very vehicle that the Lord will use to change your life. See, right now, I believe the Holy Spirit is tugging on somebody's heart. And I don't know why you're not already here. But when you most need a miracle, Jesus is standing in front of you waiting for you to receive his embrace. You see, when you most need a miracle, Jesus is our ever-present help in times of trouble. See, when you most need a miracle and your issue is getting hot, Jesus has that bucket of cold water ready to cool you off. You see, when you most need a miracle and your sin is like mud, he takes that mud and he uses it to form you into clay. When you most need a miracle, my friends, there is nothing impossible for God. The miracle of Jesus is this, is that C.S. Lewis said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And I believe right now the Lord wants to bring you back into the family of God. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. Join us next time for another uplifting message. If you'd like to support this ministry and the reaching out of others, you have the opportunity to give at rockofagesaog.org give.